Hello, my name is Daklan Dineen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of Guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Rami Ismail. Rami is one half of Vlambia, who are uh, one of the most prolific and successful independent video game developers of the past sort of 10 years. They've created wonderful games like Ridiculous Fishing and Super Crate Box, Luftrausers, um, Nuclear Throne, of course, recently. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful chat, as, as you'd uh, imagine. Um, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And it's quite long, so I'm not going to try and keep this brief. Um, the, the, the length thing is weird. It's always an internal debate I have, because me personally, I like, I like a show to be around an hour, hour and a half. And since this is my podcast... That's generally what I try and do. But, you know, occasionally the conversations just get away from you and you're having a good time and, you, you know, you're talking about fascinating things or just getting enthusiastic about things. And so, you know, they just generally go on a bit. Go on a bit. That sounds bad. No, but they they go over the a lot of time because I'm not paying attention to the time. I'm just enjoying the conversation. Um, so this is, this is uh, what happened with Rami and has happened with several guests in the past. I see I'm paying myself into a hole now because those that aren't as long, I'm, you're going to be like, well... Were they really as good? Yes, they were. Of course they were. Everyone has been wonderful. Um, but yeah, see, now I, I, I started the explanation to keep this brief. And now it's probably longer than it would have been. Um, it's a terrific chat. It's a really good chat. Um, I, I hope you enjoy it. If this if this happens to be your first episode, uh, please do go back. Listen to the back catalogue of, of wonderful guests that I've had on the show before and the uh, the autosave special episodes. Uh, and, and I hope you continue to listen. If you enjoy the show, um, don't rate and review on iTunes. You don't need to do that anymore. I've decided that's not a thing that I care about as much as I used to because I don't because I don't have a good answer of why people should do that because I don't use iTunes to look for podcasts. I I go on recommendations. So if you enjoy the show, then please do you know tell a friend, tweet about it, Facebook about it, write about it on your blog, whatever you like. Just you know try and uh, share share the, the the good news, but not in a kind of weirdly religious way. Um, that, that was a weird gulp then I'm not, I'm not, it's not, I didn't mean to gulp if you if you really like the show um, you can support us on Patreon it's uh, patreon.com forward slash checkpoints uh, I hit my first milestone um, this week which was wonderful so now the show no longer costs me any money to, to make so I've covered all of the, the hosting costs which is great so anyone who does uh, decide to, to patronize the show in the future, uh, you will only be making the show better and enabling ever more uh, elaborate autosave episodes and, and probably some better equipment because my computer is starting to get a bit flaky. Although that might just be Apple's latest up update. Oh, that would have been a sick burn if I didn't hesitate when I was saying update. It wouldn't have been. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com. We're at Checkpoint Show on Twitter and it's Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook because it's very important to have consistent branding. Um, thanks so much for downloading and, and subscribing and all that good stuff. Uh, really, I genuinely do appreciate it and especially the people who, who put money on the line for, for Patreon. It's, it's a really, oh, it's, it's genuinely quite touching. So thanks very much. Um, okay, I'll be back next week 
with uh, new episodes and a new guest. I hope you can join me. But for now, let's get on with the show. And just watch that you don't eat it all uh, if you've had a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, are you? What are you actually doing at the moment? Are you just kind of? I mean, you're working on projects, no doubt. But is anything specific that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, I mean, so we have a new project, but it's super early. Okay. So there's nothing much. There's nothing much there. Uh, we're not even sure if it's going to be a real project. Uh, it's just it's a thing we're working on. It's a it's a prototype. That must be quite tricky, though. Like I often think about that with with games because they're they're so. I mean, I, I don't have any like personal experience of making games. I'm just a, a fan of video games. But I've spoken to enough people now to realize, you know, I know the basics of how it works. I know how much of an effort it would be to, to build a game. So, like, w- when you've got an idea for, for a game, how much time would you be willing to put into it? Because you'd have to put in a certain amount of time just to get, like, a working prototype. And is it yeah. then quite difficult to be like, oh, actually, this doesn't work, let's start again? So so usually what we do is we do uh, we do two days of uh, just fast prototyping, and then after those two days we uh, we do if we like it we do um, we do two weeks. Okay. And then after those two weeks we choose whether to commit to a project or not. And is and it, then, have you ever just walked away? After oh yeah, any more yeah, than yeah. That, yeah. Like ninety percent of our ninety percent of our stuff, honestly, is just prototypes that never make it past that point. But do you like? It, there must be something valuable in that. Like, have you ever like pulled? Like, if you're writing a story or something, you you pull a line or a character from something you've dismissed and work it into yeah, something yeah. new. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Yeah, no, 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 no. The uh, let me mute my phone because this is annoying. There we go. Yeah, no. So um, the um, like you know, when when people talk about creativity, they very frequently say everything is a remix, and I, I definitely believe that is true. It's just usually interpreted the wrong way. You know, people think that everything is a remix means that you grab two different things and you smash them together, and then something slightly new comes out. But that would be a pretty simple view of creativity. Like I think creativity is is far more everything you know and everything you've seen and experienced and felt and heard and like all of those things mixed together in like a mixer in your brain and then something new comes out. Absolutely. I, I think so, that's that's why like a lot of um, firsts are generally really good, like like first albums and first films and first novels because you've got a lifetime's worth of experience to pour into this one thing yeah. and then actually making the next one is quite tricky. Although weirdly, you don't really see that in games as much. Games tend to get better. I guess they're more of a, an iterative art form. Yeah, so so with with us, like if we make a prototype that we don't like, that still gets added to that mix. Yeah. Right. So every prototype we fail is actually just a small victory. It just means that we have new things that we know don't work, and maybe some things that we know do work. Um, our game Nuclear Throne was actually a re-attempt at making a game that we did in 2011. That back then just failed miserably within the two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then we changed that game into a first-person shooter uh, called Gun Gods, where we kept like most of the um, most of the tempo and most of 
most of the movement, but we just switched it from third person to first person and then made a, a first person shooter out of it uh, because we liked the way the movement felt. Yeah. But as a roguelike, it was really bad because the way the game was set up is there was a set ex- like a set exit to the level and combined with like the very fast top-down shooter gameplay that meant most people would just run past all the enemies while shooting a whole bunch, but not like necessarily killing all the enemies, which... Okay. Um, made procedural generation a disaster. So we killed that project. We turned it into a first-person shooter um, about hip-hop on Venus. And then um, in 2013, we were doing a game jam, and um, JW, my co-founder at Flambeer, decided to take that old prototype and then instead of having an exit, making the exit tied to killing all the enemies. And suddenly you had a really good action game, and that turned into Nuclear Throne. That's amazing. Now, I'm going to get carried away asking you a bunch of questions. So let's let's do like a, a formal introduction for the sake of, of structure, Rami. So yeah. welcome to the show. Um, thanks so much for coming on. If you, uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Rami Ismail. I'm uh, one half of a Dutch independent studio named Vlambeer. Uh, we're mostly known for arcade games such as Super Crate Box. Uh, Ridiculous Fishing, Serious Sam, The Random Encounter, Luftrausers, and most recently, Nuclear Throne. Um, we also do a lot of community-related stuff. So I'm the creator of Presskit, which is a free tool for independent developers to uh, connect with the press and do distribute, which is um, a similar system. Uh, both of those are freeware. I do a lot of uh, public speaking and travel around the world, meeting with uh, developers in emerging territories and places where the games industry doesn't really exist yet to mm-hmm. try and help them out and establish a community of their own. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, I, I see that a lot. Like, You are one of the most kind of prolific sort of talkers. Like every kind of little in- interest in niche little festival you tend to be at and you travel a lot. Like, What, what, what is the, the inspiration for that? And do you ever get kind of sick of it? Well, it's fun. like the fun part about that is that it started by accident. Like it started because I was born in I'm, I'm half Dutch, half Egyptian. I was born in the Netherlands. Um, and um, when I started making video games, when I was uh, well, when I started making video games as Vlambeer, when I started doing it commercially. Yeah. Um, after 15 years of, of practice as a as an amateur uh, developer, um, when I started at, at age 21 as Flambeer, I realized that uh, everything I knew about reaching out to press was very local. And if you're in England or if you're in uh, the US, that's great because local newspapers still write English. Yeah. But in the Netherlands, they write Dutch. So if I got the largest newspaper in the Netherlands to write a thing about my games, it would have a reach of, at max, if everybody in the country bought the newspaper, it would be like 17 million readers, but only a fraction of those people read the newspaper. So say a million, maybe. And then of those people, probably 100,000 care about video games. And then of those 100,000, probably a tenth care about indie games. So I would have like a reach of like 7,000 to 10,000 people, if on a very good day, right? Yeah. Um, which is not enough. Like, if we want to be a, a game developer that functions in a niche of arcade enthusiasts and, and games that other game designers would like, then uh, we need to find a way to reach those people. So what I started doing is I started public speaking. Um, and like everything I do at Vlambeer, except for my programming, I have no formal training in business or marketing or promotion or public speaking. Like, 
I did some practice with public speaking in high school, but that was about it. Okay. Um, but I decided that, like, how hard can it be, right? Like, <laughs> the, the you get on a stage and you say some things. And if you talk about things you've done, then you're definitely the expert on that field because you did that. So I just rationalized the uh, the nerves away. And then I gave a, a talk in, in Amsterdam about Super Crate Box, which was a first game. And then I uh, gave another talk. And then I realized that at talks, there are commonly people in the audience that run other events like they're usually a pretty tight-knit community mm -hmm. event organizers um and at some point one of the people that was there was as i had hoped i would eventually run into was an event organizer for something in london um and they uh they flew me out to london um and um i basically asked them for a stipend so that i could fly myself back yeah. you know i just asked for like give me some money so i can fly back home myself like don't worry about the return flight and then i tried to stay in london as long as i could um stringing together different events and different talks and then every time at a talk i would try to meet new people that would allow me to do new talks um and then eventually that kind of spread out until i had enough of a name that i could start speaking at large events um but then the funny thing is, as I started speaking at large events, uh, clearly Vlamir became more visible, both through its games and through its its community work and through my talks. Mm -hmm. um, so I started getting these invitations from events that, you know, couldn't afford to fly me out, um, couldn't, uh, didn't really have a community, but just would be really excited if I could come check out what they're working on in like a country I had never really realized had a game development community. Yeah. And at some point I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do those. I'm just going to do those events. Um, so I started doing them and then I realized that there is so much more to game development than we think of when we think game development, right? There's so much more than the United States and the United Kingdom and Western Europe. There's game development everywhere. And I saw all these people making games from different paradigms and based on different versions of history, of different mythologies, different languages, different preferences in art and music and i was just like oh my god like there is so much potential left in this medium there's so much that is unspoken and unplayed and unseen that uh, i made it a um, i made it a huge part of my efforts to to figure out ways to to help that process to um to increase the the actual global medium of video games because we very often say it's a global medium but come on like until two years ago there were three games in total that had been localized in arabic the majority of games still don't have russian um or or indian um or or even hebrew um or or nowadays we do but until recently we didn't like chinese like yeah, this industry is very heavily focused on the Western world and Japan. Oh, absolutely. And that, like, the idea that we say something is global is uh, frankly embarrassing. Um, very frequently, like Pokemon Go is not a global phenomenon. It's not even close to a global phenomenon. If you look at Pokemon Go, yeah, sure, it's it's available in countries around the world but it's also not available in a majority of the countries uh, and not accessible in a majority of the countries 
uh, just because the, you know you'd have to sideload it, and then a lot of countries don't have good Google Maps data, so or Ingress data, so a lot of countries just don't have Pokemon on them. It's like yeah, that's not that's not a global phenomenon. Like that's a it's a phenomenon that is available internationally and in many places around the world. But for global, come on, that should mean global, right? That Absolutely. should mean everywhere. I mean, this comes up on 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 the show because I I try and speak to like a, as broad a variety of people as I can. I've had like um, some developers from India, and I've just recently did a, a, a session with a guy from Russia. And nice. because it, it's really interesting having the because I tend to talk and we talk about the games that have kind of shaped people's lives. So the games they they played growing up essentially, and just even just the difference between the UK and America is very stark because they had access to different things. Yep. But when I speak to like, um, I spoke to uh, Shalash Prabhu from, from India oh, about him lovely. growing up and he's, he's a lovely guy. And mm-hmm. like the, they, he played on the, the Nintendo Samurai, which is like a Chinese knockoff of the NES. Yep. And that's, that's amazing. I want a Nintendo Samurai. Yep. And it's really, but it, and it's all this whole, kind of canon of video games that you don't get and i think one of the most exciting things about the way things are now and the way indie uh, works now is <clears throat> excuse me you get like it's kind of like um, indie music was like 20 years ago you have very distinct scenes around you know different cities and different countries and it's, it's super exciting yeah. um, if, if only there weren't so much of it that that's the kind of the the, the the kind of the the one it's not really a negative but because there's so many people making so many great games it's impossible to kind of get yeah. a feel for for all of it necessarily well the good the, the only way i found of, of getting a good feel for it is just going to places um and that's what i've been doing and i've slowly been trying to figure out um ways to bring the knowledge that i come across and the games i come across to a broader audience yeah. and it's been really hard uh, i've been working on an initiative called game dev world um that is uh, going to take some of the most common knowledge and the most foundational knowledge of game design and development and translate it into some of the major languages in the world, um, which is a huge undertaking and a undertaking with a lot of responsibility because how do you curate what information is foundational to Absolutely, game design? Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's been a very interesting project and a very educational project as to how... Um, how much advantage and, and privilege we have in the Western world making games. Just the fact that we can program in our own alphabet. Absolutely. Is... And like most people won't think of that because they don't, you know, the because the whole conversation is based around that as well. Like the media conversation, you don't get, like I certainly wasn't. I've, I've only learned all these things from doing the show and speaking to people from around the world. Yeah. But most people, you just, it's not, I don't think necessarily people would are purposefully ignorant of it necessarily. It's just, it's not something that scene they don't they don't it's not something yeah. to think about you know and like it's it's funnier than that especially when it comes to languages with different alphabets we wouldn't even be able to Absolutely, read yeah. that there is a problem because we can't read that alphabet so there's there's huge parts of the internet like being half egyptian i can tell you that there's huge parts of the internet that are in arabic and you wouldn't even be able to find those websites if you google for them because there's not a single english words on those websites so whatever you type into Google, you will never get that website as a result. Because to get that website as a result, you would have to type in Arabic. That's right? crazy. And there's giant parts of the internet that are purely in Arabic, purely in Russian, purely in Chinese, purely in Japanese, purely in uh, Hebrew, that if you don't know those alphabets, you will never be able to find those websites. And I find that fascinating. Oh, it's, uh, it's insane. 
because when you think about it, it's probably in many ways um, similar uh, for other alphabets, if if not for the fact that English is so um, it's, it's like our lingua franca. It's like the main language of the world right now. Um, but yeah, no, there's entire parts of the internet that other people that speak other alphabets will never find uh, because they don't use those alphabets commonly. So I have, uh, I, I do have an interesting counter to that, and it's it's not it, it it's uh, it's a little bit self indulgent on my part. But one of the things I think that really helps, not helps with that, but that that can cut through that is uh, hashtags. Um, mm-hmm. I did a a thing a couple of years ago where just literally on a whim, I decided I'd try and meet everybody who followed me on Twitter. I, I made it like just a little personal goal to see if I could meet everyone who followed me. Yeah. Um, and I did that and it wasn't that many people, it was about 150 people. And and towards the end, I met up with someone from the BBC and the story got onto the BBC and ended up going viral for a couple of days. Nice. And I had called it hashtag meet and tweet. And I was able to get websites from literally all over the world that, you know, were all in Russian or all in Chinese, but they had hashtag meet and tweet. So I was still able to find yeah. all these samples but from new sites that I'd never see in my life because yeah. everything on the site wasn't in any recognizable characters except for the hashtag. Yeah, no, but that's kind of like if you look on Twitter nowadays and you look at your trending topics, you will find that a majority of the worldwide trending topics are not in English or in a in a Latin alphabet anymore, yeah. right? Uh, which is good because it means these services are reaching outside of our traditional sphere uh, in a way that really only Twitter can. Absolutely. Uh, because Facebook can't do that because it's self-filtered. Um, well, Twitter is is not so. There's so much. There's so much fascinating stuff when it comes to language and and our understanding of the world and our our failure to properly understand the world. Um, that I feel the internet is is helping with. Um, you know, the internet being the oddest thing in our modern culture. Oh yes, there's all the best and the worst of everything. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's 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 go back then, Rami. So um, so you grew up in the Netherlands, and if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Oh, I remember that exactly because it's also how I started making games. Um, we got a we got a computer when I was six years old. My parents were both um, not um, rich, um, but you know we we weren't poor either. Uh, but we couldn't really afford a computer, uh, so an uncle of ours actually gave us uh, our first computer, and um, that computer was getting set up for my dad's work, and in, on it was a um, a graphical user interface, um, and it wasn't like Windows or anything. It was like a little menu, and okay. it had different options. You know, it could open WordPerfect, it could open. Um, uh, some sort of spreadsheet program. It had like an administration software on it, stuff like that. So my dad could reach anything he wanted. But one thing the engineer that set that up didn't do is he didn't disable the option to exit the graphical user interface. Um, and so, so maybe, it was just some sort of odds operating system. Yeah, it was just a menu, really. It was like I, I, I think it was just like a. a a little batch file that would just give you an option between like eight different things. Okay. You, you just use the arrow keys to go to the thing and then you press enter and it will boot up that program. And that was all it was. Um, but what was fascinating is the engineer didn't remove the exit, the graphic user interface thing. And if you did that, you would end up in MS-DOS, right? So I would, I would 
figure out MS-DOS and uh, mess around with it. I didn't speak English, so I had no idea what it was, uh, but it told me that I could use help to get help, and help is the same word in Dutch. So uh, I typed help, and it gave me a whole bunch of commands, and I just tried all of them uh, until eventually I figured out how to move through MS-DOS. And then um, one of the folders was called QBasic. Okay. And um, I would open that folder, and then there was um, there was a file called QBasic, and there was a file called gorillas.bas, and there was a file called nibbles.bas. Um, and I couldn't open the the gorillas or nibbles files, but they sounded like fun because why would there be a gorillas file? Yeah. Uh, so I opened QBasic, and then it turned out that you could load files from QBasic, and one of those files was gorillas. So I opened Gorillaz and just, it was the most terrifying thing. Like the entire screen was full of <laughs> letters and numbers and uh, weird characters. And it definitely looked like a place where I wasn't supposed to be, but it had an instruction to press F5 on my keyboard. And so I did. And it booted up a game called Gorillaz. And the game Gorillaz was, uh, it's like those, those scorcher games where you, you have two tanks on either side of the screen. Yep. And then each player gets to take a turn entering an angle and a velocity for their projectile. And then it shoots a projectile with that angle and velocity, and you're trying to hit the other tank. And then you take turns. Um, and those games, there were a lot of those games back in the days. But this one, instead of tanks, not that I knew that there were other games like it, but it had gorillas. Um, so you threw gorillas... You threw bananas, explosive bananas, from Gorilla to the other Gorilla. And I played that a lot with my brother. Um, but as I played it more and more often and got more comfortable seeing all of those characters on those screens, um, I decided to scroll through that and figure out what those letters were. And, you know, you scrolled with the arrow keys back then because there was no mouse on that computer. Yeah. So at some point I was scrolling through it and I didn't understand a single word. But what I did see was that the text of the main menu was in those in those letters. So I went and I I you know got myself in a courageous mood and I removed the text from the main menu and replaced it with my name. Okay. And then the next time I booted up Gorillas instead of the main menu it just said my name. Uh which forever shattered the illusions that games are a whole thing and not just a whole bunch of code and letters on a screen. And you were like six or seven when this was happening. I was six. How, how, where did this, I, I don't know, that, that, that seems such a, like, there's so much bold curiosity in that and, and kind of intuition as well to, to, to do that. My parents um, have more than frequently told me that um, curiosity is one of the best worst traits in a kid. <laughs> like, they're very happy, but also it got me in a lot of trouble um, many, many times. Like, obviously, as I was messing around with that code, almost immediately I broke it. <laughs> irreversibly um, so I spent like a day crying with my dad before he got a copy of the game from work again uh, imagine my dad having to go to work being like my kid destroyed <laughs> a file called gorillas.bas and I don't know what it is but he wants it back <laughs> and the engineers being like that's a, that's what huh okay sure fine whatever um, but yeah no so I um I don't know, like I, I've always been curious as to how things work and why things work. Um, and I don't really remember ever being different from that. Okay. Um, but, 
but honestly, like six years old is long enough ago that I have very few memories of, of anything. I very distinctly remember seeing my name on the screen and being like, oh my God, <laughs> I can change things in these letters. And then the video game changes. That's and very exciting. From there, I was a developer, right? Like from that point on, I was a developer first and, and, a, and a player second. I Even always... though you broke the game afterwards, did that not, did that not put any sort of uh, doubts oh, or a... worry in your mind? I just got a copy, a new copy, <laughs> and then I just tried it again, right? But like every game I played from that point on, I would try and search for like data files that I could read or, or I would try and open the files in like MS Paint to see if they were secretly images because back in the days they would very often hide files with different extensions. Yeah. So instead of like the BMP that the file actually was, they would call it like an, an IMG file or like a, a text file with information on like units would be called like .dat for data. But like honestly, it was just a text file. Uh, so I spent a lot of time just like hacking around in like old games did you ever find uh, anything weird? Like I, I spoke to my friend Tony a couple of episodes ago and he, he did the same thing with uh, old Commodore 64 games and he would find, he said he remembers he was so excited when he found a message from one of the programmers saying, get the fuck out of my code, yeah, which is brilliant. No, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. We still do that with Vlambeer. Our, <laughs> our save files are always in plain text and there's always a message from us at the top. Um, but yeah, no, that's... That's the kind of stuff you would find, or you would find like a, a, a debug unit that was really meant to just win matches. You know, like it was just overly powerful, overly fast, yeah. um, infinite ammo, infinite everything. And it was just commented out with like, don't use this. So you would, you would make it like a real piece of code and then it would execute. And then suddenly you had the best unit in the entire game. And was uh, this like unique to you though? Like, did you have... Like you said, you played games with your brother. Did he have the same thing, or did you have like a group of friends that that you know formed around video games? No, no, not really. I uh, I never really had friends that liked any of this stuff until I went to university uh, for game design and development, uh, but, like, which was a did they like major games, culture shock. What? Did yeah, they... people like games. My brother, like the fun thing about my brother is my brother was always better at playing the games. He's like two years younger than me, so I would teach him a game, and then within like two weeks, he would just destroy me at that game. Like, I would play, I would teach him StarCraft, and within two weeks, he would be dropping like the strongest units of the game into my base while I was just still trying to like build my first three buildings, right? Like, he's always been better at playing games. And I think, in a way, that might have helped a bit with pushing me to make, you know, StarCraft maps that gave me a slight advantage. Um, so were you so, always more interested in maybe in pulling them apart and seeing how they worked rather than playing them? Do you think? Well, my my first my first interaction with games was exactly that, right? And yeah. it has always been how I played games since. It's like I've I've seen behind the curtain of the production, and I think as a developer, it is practically impossible to turn that to turn that off, especially if you're involved in many parts of the creation of a game. Um, it's impossible to turn that that vision off you know like when i when i go and play like we were recently playing halo 5 with a bunch of friends when it came out mm -hmm. um and three of them aren't game developers and, and uh, actually two of them aren't game developers and two of them two of us are 
Um, and it's like our, our default gaming group. Like we, whenever I'm in the Netherlands, we'll get them together, play some board games, play some video games. Uh, and we always play like the Gears and the Halo games together when they come out. Yeah. And we were playing Halo 5 and like we had a pretty okay time with the game. But um, the the moments that would make us stop and, and talk were for the two game developers very different from <laughs> the two non-game developers. Like the two non-game developers would be like, oh my God, this is, a, this is awesome. Like there's just stuff happening everywhere. And me and the other game developer... Uh, we would stop and go like, "Oh my God, did you see that texture streaming? That was good. That's some good. Like that's good. Like I don't know how they went from such a small corridors to such an open vista. Like how did they make that? And um, that seems a little bit sad. A little bit that you, you you never get to experience them as just you know a wish fulfillment or like fantasy or anything. You're always looking. You know, it's like like being Neo. You're always looking at the code." Yeah, but then again, like, is that is that a worse way to to you know enjoy a game? Because I enjoy the game. Like, I very strongly enjoy the game. I had a great experience with it. Uh, I had a good time. I but my my wish fulfillment is different, right? My wishes aren't aligned with that of a of uh, a, a consumer gamer yeah. uh, either. Like, I want to know how things are made and why they're made that way. Like, so when I see how they do something or I figure it out that's huge like that that makes my day where I look at something I'm like oh that's clever oh why didn't I think of that or like oh my god this is amazing right like how did they make that like I play something like Uncharted 4 and I'm just continuously sitting there like oh my god like some artists spent like a week making that tiny village in the backdrop that you will only see if you rotate the camera away from where the camera like automatically goes yeah and you know i just sit there in awe at well awe and like a little bit of like terrifiedness for how hard the work must have been to make that yeah um but i i appreciate that in a different way and like sure i i enjoy the stories of those games but um i also enjoy the craft of it more than uh you know a, 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 the average consumer might um and I have less of the uh, wish fulfillment that a usual consumer has. And I don't think that's a lesser way of enjoying video games. It's a very different way, though. Yeah, no, no, not necessarily lesser. I don't. It just, I don't know. There's something like other devs. I don't know. Like, would the, I was, I was going to say other devs must hate you playing their games, but I'm sure not because you can you can see things. It's 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 like the the the, the game they're making for other people isn't the same game they're making for you if you if you see what i mean like you would see it in a totally different way so absolutely developers don't talk about games the same way your average consumer does right like sure we talk about how the game is set up and we talk about the story and we enjoy games like we very free like most developers i know enjoy games some of them don't which is fine as well um but like we we are not making games for other developers. Like we are craftsmen and craftswomen working on these games, trying to make something beautiful. And part of our pride comes from the the effort and the iteration and the the achievement of making the thing. So when we're talking to each other, we're talking about the challenges we run into and the obstacles and yeah. the solutions and like the clever little hack that we did there, the horrible code that's supporting that, <laughs> and the beautiful code that's supporting this other thing and the process and the, the, the woes of launching a game on a console or the annoyance we have at certain 
um, systems or stores and like you know like an average an average game developer conversation doesn't really go into like you know like what about that massive crab at the end of level two that was amazing yeah 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 or like uh, you know like um um there's a skirmish uh, like the the way the skirmish is set up is is um like the level a lot of a very fun conversation i had recently was how the levels in the new doom game are set up very much like batman levels okay how they are like they always loop around and they have like always a weird point that feels like you're wrapping around the level and they're these small contained arenas that uh, force you to basically run around and it's like the, yeah it's very arcadey very batman design and we had like we spent like an hour analyzing different doom maps to figure out whether you know the whether we could could keep that idea that maybe they were inspired by pac-man and i asked one of the developers of doom they're like yeah yeah that that sounds that sounds yeah that sounds about right i was like cool <laughs> and you go away like, and high five your dev pals Nailed yeah but it. that's it right like this is the kind of stuff that we like we have our inspirations and like figuring out what somebody's inspiration was is really fun like yeah, hey totally. i'm seeing a little bit of this game here is that is that true and it's like yeah that was an inspiration it's like nice um, it's that kind of conversation that's really fun as a developer, I feel. Um, and yeah, sure. We talk about how awesome, like the, like I've been raving about the new final fantasy, like final fantasy 15. I'm yeah. so looking forward to that game and I'm effectively like your average, like fan right there. Right. Like I just want to play that game. But when I know that when I will be playing that game, I'll be paying a lot of attention to like the little things that give away the production behind it. Like maybe I can feel in that game that there were production issues, right? Or that uh, a scene was made way earlier than another scene. Or like a lot of developers have like a, a, an inherent intuition for that kind of feeling, yeah. um, which is really fun. Like I love talking about that kind of stuff and I feel most developers talk about that kind of stuff too. Well, with this like, you know, very early interest in kind of pulling apart games and, and looking at the code and stuff, did you did you always stay on on pc or would you have moved on the consoles and if you did that like would, wouldn't that have been quite um you know you, you couldn't do that on a console so you couldn't get that same enjoyment out of it yeah so i i wasn't really a console gamer for most of my life i only started doing that quite recently um with the um with the 360 i guess and was that uh, like I, I, the, the reason I bring that up is because you know you, you talk about your first experience with the game what was essentially kind of pulling apart the game and seeing how it yeah. worked. So clearly that instilled a, a love of video games in you. But you know most people growing up you'd be like I love video games. I want whatever. I want whatever's new. I want the Super Nintendo. I want the Mega Drive. But well, if, if you're looking for something different, would you be going for like no? I want a new PC. I want the latest version of this OS or something. Well, so for a large part, I didn't realize that my enjoyment for games mostly came from pulling things apart. So I did want all of those things. Okay. But, um, the first console I ever wanted was the PlayStation. Um, and I sent my dad to buy a PlayStation for my birthday. I don't know. It was like my 11th or 12th birthday or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, my dad being an Egyptian from Shopra in Cairo, which is like the the poor man's district really in many ways uh he went to the black market to okay. buy one 
and he came home with something called a police station, which <laughs> is packaged exactly like a PlayStation and looks very much like the images I showed him. Uh, but it's actually a uh, super, uh, not even a Super Nintendo. I think it's a Nintendo. Uh, no, it is a Super Nintendo. It's a Super Nintendo with 99 games preloaded on it. Uh, and it doesn't have a disc reader. It's just a, it's just, it's just the the cover for it's it. Just the shell. Yeah. Uh, Depending on the games, though, that could be pretty good. So that's the thing. Like I ended up really happy because uh, the way those systems work is it, they didn't have 99 games. They had like 11 games, and then those 11 games would be repeated nine times with okay. like slight, <laughs> slight variations. Um, but that actually exposed how the games worked as well to me. So, uh, and were they just like knockoff games, or were they? No, 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 no. There was like Contra, and then there was a Contra version where the colors were different, and then there was like one was Contra, and twelve was Contra with weird colors, <laughs> and twenty-two was Contra where you started in a boss fight, and then it just glitched through the levels in a weird order, and then. 44, I remember, was Contra, but the characters had, like, a sprite swap. So you had um, to remember the numbers as well. You couldn't just... They weren't titles, yeah, you just picked the numbers. Yeah, and they would numbers. be named differently, right? Like, it wouldn't be called Contra again. It would be, like, one was Contra, and, like, 12 would be Freedom Warriors or something. <laughs> and, like, you would boot it up, and it would just show the Contra logo again. And you'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, but, but in a way, that also exposed that they were not, like... They were not untouchable, right? These games were a product of code. And they were made of pieces that you could change. That you would, if you knew how to interact with that device in a way that allowed you to pull up the code, then you should presumably be able to, to change that again, right? So by the time I got an Xbox 360, I was far enough along game development that I didn't need to see that to know that it was true that these games were developed, right? And um, instead, I would focus on, like, the design and the art and the, you know, what are the choices that people have made. So at that point, my my understanding of games became far more abstract rather than concrete. Um, so but, but before that, though, like, when when you got the, the, the Polystation and, uh, like, that kind of age, was there... Um, a kind of social aspect to games like what was it like you mentioned that your friends weren't into the sort of you know pulling apart games in the same way but was there still you know here are my friends and we're all gamers mostly together my younger kind brother yeah mostly my younger brother uh, my younger brother and I would play a lot of games usually collaborative games but every now and then versus games I had two cousins um, from Egypt that I would play games with one of them was very much into video games as well but I would only see them like a few months a year because yeah. they live in Egypt. Um, but then outside of that, not really. I think I remember like one or two high school friends that kind of liked games. Um, but then they liked games in like the playing games way. And I was far less interested in that, I guess. Um, so it was, a, no, it was very like when I went to university, it was very much a culture shock that there were more people like me. <laughs> that uh, must have been amazing though. That must have felt great. Oh, it was it was just uh, it was unbelievable that there were people that were interested in how things are made and why things are made. Like the study, the the school I went to technically um, gave interaction design rather than game design, 
Um, so it didn't just blow my mind that there were people that were interested in, in video games because, you know, a lot of people that ended up there were, were interested in video games primarily, but also that there were people that had that same attitude towards cameras and Game Boys and screens and toothbrushes and space shuttles and anything that had interaction, any button yeah. was fascinating to them. And I, I was quickly infected with, with that as well. So, And what uh, did you go there, there for? Like, had, had you kind of decided at this point, like, I'm going to make games because, you know, you've been doing it for so long, theoretically. Yeah. So in in 2006, I joined a forum of a developer that was doing commercial space sims. Okay. Um, And I helped out there a bit. Like I I would just do feedback and like hang out in the forums. And then eventually I got a few more responsibilities and actually worked with them a little bit. Um, And then I realized that this guy, uh, Sean, Sean from, um, from Boise, Idaho, was working on as a single single person he was making video games and then selling them online so there was a career like you could make video games your job and i hadn't i hadn't even considered that back in the days that you could make this a, a job like yeah. this could be this could be your your actual real life occupation um so I looked around one day if there were courses that would teach you how to be that. Like how how do you, how do you become that? How do you yeah. become a professional game developer? Uh, like all of these heroes I was reading about, like Hideo Kojima and and, and uh, John Romero and and Warren Spector, and you know, like all of these big names of people that somehow made this their their livelihood and uh, it turned out that there were a few schools that did that so my mom took me to the uh to the open house open day open whatever yeah um and um yeah i decided that that was what i wanted to do that's very exciting was there ever a point like uh, th- this comes up a lot when i because you know I, I talk to people about growing up with games and there tends to be a point when people sort of hit kind of 16 17 that they kind of drift away from games and that Oh no, I'm too cool for video games. Now. Did you ever have that? I, I imagine you didn't, but no, no, because I was not like I didn't care whether it was cool. Yeah, like that was never that was never a consideration for me. Like I was totally fine with that not being cool. I just wanted to make these things, and then the things I would make, you know, maybe people would find those cool. But by that time, I was already so invested in creating things that um, that was really not a consideration. It was just this, this, I knew that this could work. I had seen that this could work. Um, and I wanted to try that. So also I... like to wrap up one of the, one of the earlier stories, the police station. Mm-hmm. One day I decided to see if I could somehow get the data out of that. I blew it up. <laughs> it, uh, it burned it out. Oh, R.I.P. Police Station. Yeah, what a shame. <laughs> Turns out they made new ones too. There's like a Police Station 2 and a Police Station 3. <laughs> it's really funny. They just look like their equivalent PlayStation versions. That'd be that'd be quite a fun present. That'd be, that'd be yeah, a fun right? thing to get from someone. Yep. <laughs> um, but before we sort of talk about the uni stuff, like did... So prior to that, you know, you had, the, you had this kind of epiphany, like, oh, I could make games. Like, but... It, 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 were there games that you had played that you were like oh my god this is amazing i want to do this like as opposed to just the thrill of figuring out how things work and making them yourself were there games that were like no this is 
this experience of playing this thing is brilliant and I want to be able to do that for people. Yeah, I, I remember a few. There was a game, there's a game that nobody really heard of uh, back in the days and it was called, it was a Microsoft game, uh, um, Urban Assault. Okay. And it was, uh, I think it was like a 1996 game uh, made by a studio that immediately went out of business after making that. Oh. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was a weird combination of like a first-person shooter and an RTS. I think it was German. Like, uh, I don't know. But like the thing is, it, you would play a strategy game and then you could double-click on any unit you build and you would take immediate control of that unit, whether it was a tank or a helicopter or an airplane or these giant floating fortresses that were your headquarters. Uh, and you would try to capture power stations uh, to get more energy to build bigger armies and then those armies you could tie them to the unit you were controlling so that these giant armies would follow you and you could like fly them into combat right that sounds great it was great it was broken in many ways but it was so fascinating and so much fun um so the um that game was like one of the games where I was like, I want to be able to make games like that. And then there were two other games that really, three other games actually that really pushed me. You had Transport Tycoon, uh, which I adored. Like it was very much my kind of thing, right? Building things and complex systems, building railroads and buses and airports and airplanes. And was that essentially like, I don't think I have played the Transport Tycoon. Is that just like SimCity, but you just control the roads and the public transport and stuff? You just control the public transport. Yeah. Uh, it's really good. It actually holds up. There's an open source version of it nowadays called Open TTD, Open Transport Tycoon Deluxe. Um, and you might have to somewhere buy uh, an old copy of the game to get okay. the data files to run that, but it's it's actually holds up really really well. Um, and then uh, there was a game called Killer Loop, which was effectively I found out later just a Wipeout clone. It was like the budget version of Wipeout, uh, but. Killer Loop was just this really fast, like wipeout esque racing game with like fancy space future racing pods, and I loved it. And you could like drive, like the roads would like do corkscrews, and your your ship would have magnets, so you could drive upside down and stuff. And it was so fast uh, that just the sense of acceleration was yeah. amazing. But then the game that really got me, um, it should so. With the caveat that it should have been Doze X, but I couldn't beat the first level. Um, <laughs> because the Statue of Liberty level in Doze X is just, it's still too, like, even nowadays I look back at it with like, oh my god, the spike at the start of that game, the difficulty spike is completely unreasonable. Uh, so I never got further into Doze X, so it became Metal Gear Solid. Oh, okay. And Metal Gear Solid was, that, was the first game I ever bought with my own money. Uh, but like the sense of like intrigue and world and politics and heroes and failures and flawed characters and betrayal and all that, it was way too much for me. Like I had no idea what was happening. All I knew is that it felt like a movie. Yeah. But and, I was in this movie. And weirdly, that is like very, very similar to Pac-Man, that first game especially. Yeah. Yep. Like the whole design of it, but just the presentation of it was unbelievable.
Yeah, no, it was it was such a web of different thoughts and 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 styles and experiences. Um, yeah, no, that game blew me blew me away. Like I just, I was like, this is this if this is what video games can do, like it can do anything, right? <laughs> you can make any. Clearly, you can make anything. Um, as I was staring at this seven polygon face of a human without eyes and no nose. <laughs> uh, but it looked like a human and I knew it was a human and it talked like a human. So it, clearly it was a human. Absolutely. Right? Why do you say uh, it should have been Deus Ex? Because I played Deus Ex first and it has all of the same things. Everything that Metal Gear Solid does, Deus Ex does as well. It has the web, it has the flawed humans, it has the, the, the hero, the choices, the, the drama, the movie conspiracy theories the sense of scale it has all of those things right like the stakes in Deus Ex are, are real but yeah. yeah for me Deus Ex was that game where you tried to climb the Statue of Liberty and for some reason there were always like bombs or robots or things shooting you <laughs> and then you die and then whatever oh that is such uh, a shame yeah I played it after um, after that uh, and I actually love Deus Ex but yeah, I couldn't play it before Metal Gear Solid, so Metal Gear Solid gets that, gets, gets that. that place in your heart. Yep. Um, so when you when you go to uni, then is that you know you suddenly with all these like minded people? But was there um, was there a game community as well where you would just play games? Yeah, we would. We would. Um, I mean, yes and no. We had a community that would come together and like do media stuff whether it was games or movies or music or whatever, it doesn't really matter. We would have like a bad movie night where we watched like bad, like bad knockoff movies like yeah. Godzilla, whatever, uh, Godzilla like movies, uh, bad horror movies, uh, weird art movies, um, hilariously broken, um, sort of like, satire movies like all sorts of stuff and we would play sometimes games sometimes you can't tell the difference between them yeah yeah exactly <laughs> uh and then uh we would play some games every now and then and like as as that progressed you could see that there were different groups of people in school there were the people that wanted to do trip away there's the people that wanted to do large scale stuff that wanted to do 3d stuff and then there were the more artistically minded people that wanted to do like weird artsy um small games um, so, so as things went, you know, you could feel that there were different ideologies behind making games. And I actually found yeah. that fascinating as well. Um, but yeah, like, what I, were you being taught though? Like, I mean, was it specifically game design stuff? Like, could you, or like stuff that essentially would be applicable across all of those interests, regardless of what you wanted to do at the end of it? Uh, so the, the course I did specifically was focused primarily on game design, but, um, it turns out that if you've been making games since you were six, that you get bored. Okay. Um, so I got really bored and I actually dropped out of the course after two years. Um, it's a bold which, move. It was a really bad move, uh, but it worked out really well because the only other person that had the same frustrations as me was, um, like I said, we had different groups in that school, right? Yeah. And I was from the group that really wanted to make like high quality polished games. Like I would like to spend 
six months to a year on a game, I would like to put it on Xbox Live Arcade back in the days. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to do this like Sean from Star Raid. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to do this professionally and for a, a living and a wage. There was this one other guy who was part of the sort of what I like to think of like the obnoxious hipster group uh, that just really wanted to make artsy stuff. And he was really good at making like small stuff but like 99% of it was really bad. And then the 1% that was good, he wouldn't ever finish. <laughs> so I talked to him when I decided to drop out. And uh, it turned out that he would be okay with collaborating. So you dropped out separately? Like it, you weren't sort of friends beforehand and you were like, okay, let's drop out and start Vlambia. You just both separately dropped out and then got together. Yeah, basically we both reached the same conclusion. And then we um, we both decided to to stop. Um, I mean, by the by the time we realized that both of us were stopping, uh, we still had a few months of, of school year left. So we worked on radical fishing, which would earn us our first money as a company. And we we you know we we really locked down what this studio was going to be and how it was going to work. So it wasn't like we both dropped out and damn Flambeer happened. It right, was like okay. we just both decided to drop out. We figured out that both of us were dropping out. We came to an agreement. We started work on getting ready for that company. And then we dropped out. Do you think you would have dropped out without that kind of relative theoretical safety net? I don't know. I have no idea of knowing that. Like it was definitely a, because like the way we found each other was because both of us were seriously considering dropping out, right? So it was definitely a a, a real concern, a real concern that we had, yeah. and a, a definite real choice that we might have made. But there's no way for me to tell how things would have worked out if if we hadn't run into each other that way. And was this kind of around the period of like the the birth of Xbox Live Arcade, and you started to see like indie games as as a kind of you know a, a new marketplace essentially? Yeah, it was about three years after that. Okay. Uh, so it was like uh, one of the ways we decided to get started was that JW had a prototype. My co-founder had a prototype called um, uh, Crates from Hell, um, and. Crates from Hell was um, was a bad game, but with a lot of potential. So what we did is we decided to uh, redo that game for Xbox Live Arcade. Okay. And it was called Super Crate Box. And then halfway through that process, we decided to not put it on Xbox Live Arcade and release it as freeware instead. Why? What what changed? We realized that nobody knew who we are and nobody, you know, gave a damn about what we were doing. Yeah. So we needed to find people that would like us first. And we thought if we make a really good game and give it away for free, then a lot of people will play our stuff and then maybe they will stay in touch with us. Well, that clearly paid off, though. It, it, it totally worked. It was a huge risk and it's also the first... It was also the first time jw saw that i could make choices that would work out for us yeah because like it's really easy for for me to see that jw's design chops were good you know it was really easy for me to see that this guy was good at what he did it took me some time to come to terms with that this annoying 
guy was actually good <laughs> at what he did. Um, and it took him some time to realize that this uh, business-minded programmer with no respect for the arts of games uh, was actually a good programmer, right? Uh, but when we came to terms with that, we might not like each other personally, but we do have a lot of respect for each other's work. We had to decide who was going to do the business and marketing. And JW just said, I'm not doing that. So I started doing it. And then my first choice was to release Super Create Box for free. Uh, and that paid off perfectly. But that must have been so, so difficult because you would have been, you know, dropped out of uni, probably not much money. Like that, that's, that's a very difficult choice to make. So yeah, it is a difficult choice, but you have to remember that we are in the Netherlands and the Netherlands have an amazing social support network. Education at that time was effectively free. Okay. Um, in fact, in many cases, the state paid you money to go to school. Like we got $200 a month so that we could uh, pay for our rent uh, from the school, which means we still had to pay for rent. Like we still had to get a job on the side, but like... Um, in general, it just meant that when we dropped out, we started with zero debt. That's that is such a, a, a sadly unique um, I, place for someone to be in. I'm going to go ahead and say that it's extra sad that since the Dutch government has decided to remove that program. I, I can't imagine anywhere where that would still be applicable, to be honest. Yep. Yeah, it used well, probably the Nordics, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it used to be true here. And it's no longer true here. It's actually one of the most upsetting things about my studio right now. Because, you know, Vlambeer does really well. And I've always been very proud that we could pay a, a, a rather enormous amount of taxes. Uh, yeah. Because the Netherlands have like up to 52% taxation. Uh, and then the government just went like, everything you care about is no longer a thing that we're going to do with your tax money. Instead, we're going to support rich people buying expensive houses. And I was like, oh. That's a, a worldwide problem, uh, unfortunately. What a, what a joke. What a Anyway, world. yeah. It's one of those things where um, I would love for that money to actually help kids like me yeah. do go to a school without having to worry about how they're going to come out on the other end financially and actually dealing like actually figuring that out as they are as, as they are learning a job right yeah as they're learning an attitude or a paradigm on the world if you can figure it out then instead of when you're like 14 like you can't ask a 14 year old kid like what do you want to be when you grow up like that's not how that works like yes i knew but most kids don't no but somehow that's still the system we ended up with so yeah I've gone to a dark place. Let's go some somewhere happier then. So yes, let's go. Um, so when the super great bo crate box kind of worked out for you, so that like how 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 did you did you have like a, a bunch of games kind of in mind aside from uh, super great box that you were like right we do this and then we're going to work on this game and then this game is going to be the the one that makes us some money. No, no, <laughs> we like to think of of how we operate Flamber as like plumbing. Okay. Like there's a pipe and there's water flowing through and uh, we want the water to reach the other end and we're just fixing the leaks as they happen so the first game that we ever released was called radical fishing and it was a game about fishing with machine guns and it was actually put into production after jw did uh crates from hell uh but we did it because when we dropped out of school i mean we didn't have a huge debt 
but also we didn't have any money. Yeah. So we made uh, Radical Fishing, which earned us $10,000 uh, when we sold it, uh, which was, a, you know, we needed to make a game to earn money. It's the only way, only thing we were good at. So mm -hmm. let's make a game to earn money. And that Super Crate Box came out. And then we decided to make some other small stuff uh, because we realized that releasing freeware stuff would make people interested in our stuff, right? People were following our Twitter and reaching out and like if eventually we got a nomination for the Independent Games Festival Award. Like it's stuff like that where it just slowly built. Yeah. I always like to think of Lambert as a minecart. Okay. Like the first part of Lambert was us pushing a minecart up a hill, right? Like along the rail, like yeah, pushing yeah, yeah. it up. And then the idea was that at the top of the hill, we would both hop into the minecart and it would like go down, like roll down very fast and it would go slightly deeper than where we started, right? And then we would we would ride along as it would climb again and lost momentum and then we would hop out of it and then push it up like <laughs> to a taller point and then it would roll down again deeper than where we started. And then that amplitude, you know, that wave yeah. would get bigger and bigger until eventually uh, we would we would hopefully have a studio that was sustainable, right? And instead, what kind of happened is we pushed it down that first hill and we started running. We, we forgot to like kind of jump in and it just started rolling and it's been rolling ever since. And we've been <laughs> running after it ever since. And it's like this, it reached this amazing momentum where it took us until after Nuclear Throne was launched to, to see the bottom where we could like hop in again. And like start pushing again to build something. We've <laughs> just been on across the courtyard to catch it on the other side. Yeah, we've just been down. on this roller coaster, running behind a thing that we gave a first push, and then we were like, "Well, we'll see where this push ends in like a year." And instead, <laughs> like we're six years in, and we're just now for the first time stopping and looking around us and like catching our breath and being like, "Oh my god, what happened? What <laughs> happened?" That's a that's a lovely analogy. Um, I, I I remember my birthdays up until I was twenty. <laughs> and then as soon as Vlambert started, all I remember is game releases. Just because life went so fast. I have no idea. I had no idea how old I was. I was like, I don't know how old I am, but I sure released Lufthrousers. <laughs> um, how is your, your relationship now with uh, JW? It's actually very similar. Like, we've grown to trust each other a lot. But um, I still don't want to hang out with the guy. And he still doesn't want to hang out with me, really. Um, That's really interesting. The the only like I do uh, one of my many various obsessions is is magic. I do I do magic. I love magic, mm -hmm. and um, that's exactly how Penn and Teller are. If you know Penn and Teller, oh, yeah, 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 I do. Just know them. you know, they're together for like you know thirty years working together, and they're like we don't really hang out, but we both yeah. we both uh, trust and respect each other's opinions, and that's fine. Yeah. That's enough. But that's the thing. Like, I have the utmost respect for um, for JW and all he does. And if he says that something is A, then unless I have a very good reason to argue with that, I I don't have the illusion that I can that I can out design him, and he doesn't have the illusion he can out program me or out run you know like out out class me at running the company or anything. Yeah. Uh, like he does his thing, I do my thing. We amplify each other's work, um, and then Flammer games happen. That, uh, it's it be makes, so gratifying, though. 
yeah, it, it makes for a great way to work with each other because we can be very honest with each other because yeah. we're not at risk at, of like losing a friendship or hurting a friend or anything. Yeah. Like we can be extremely openly, directly honest with each other. Um, and if we somehow come to an agreement that something is interesting with our different worldviews and our different uh, appreciations and likes and perspectives and all that, um, if we both agree that something is good, it's very likely that it is, right? And that's how we select our games. That's how we choose what program, what games to work on. That's very exciting. So, like during this kind of runaway runaway minecart uh, period with, with of Lambia, were you still playing as many games, or were you just focused on making your own? So I lost playing games for years of my life. Uh, and I actually very, very much regret that. Um, for like the period of like 2010 to 2013, after Ridiculous Fishing came out, I played barely any games at all. Um, and then after Ridiculous Fishing came out, Ridiculous Fishing was sort of like the defining hit for Vlambeer. Like after that, we were not a scrappy indie studio trying yeah. to get along. We were an indie studio that was sustainable for a pretty long time from that point on. Um, after that, I decided to like chill out, learn to take care of myself, learn to be a human being. <laughs> like, like this is a thing that a lot of developers have issues with is that for most people, when you, when you go through life, your twenties are spent, uh, learning, learning a craft or, or a job, uh, getting the, the intro level version of that job right like the the low end like entry point level of that job and getting your life together yeah that's your 20s and then your 30s you've got your stuff together you might have a stable relationship or not you might have a place to live or not uh you might have a job or not but like your 30s you build your career so you have this entry level job and then you're going to try and move up in the world so you can support a larger family, you can support a bigger house, you can support more travel, you can support whatever it is, right? Yeah. So for independent developers, life just goes the opposite way. So at 20, you've got nothing, and sure, you can take an entry-level job, but that will make zero money. Like entry-level indie developer just means you earn nothing, right? Um, so you got to build a career. you got to just straight out of the gates, you got to build a brand, you got to build a community, you got to build games you gotta spend your life getting better learning uh, learn, like teaching yourself how to do things uh, figuring out how to deal with like your emotional state uh, with the idea that you're making something that is immeasurable like you can't measure how good a game is other people will do that for you but it's yeah. entirely subjective in many ways you can't say how good you are opposed to others or how much you still have left to learn um, so you spend all of your 20s becoming a professional and then you reach 30 and you're like, so how do I human? <laughs> how, how, how do I adult? Like, oh my God, like how, I have an apartment now. How do I deal with this? How do you, like a lot of developers are at like at 25, 26, 27, when they reach like closer to 30, they're like, I had, I still have to learn how to be an adult. Like I have no idea. I don't, I don't even think that's necessarily true just for indie developers anymore either. I think that's a much kind of, broader generational thing because they, they, I mean that kind of very kind of established progression of I'm going to 
do this and then I'm going to work at this and then I'm going to aim to get promoted and stuff that those kind of institutions are, are rarer by the by the day almost yep and but a large part of that is the the way the world is more freelancer oriented yeah. than it used to be um but for freelancers this is generally true oh uh, yeah totally the, the, you just have, your whole life is a deadline and you yep. you, mu you must always be working otherwise you know what are you going to do so yeah, indie indie developers are a relatively extreme version of that. Yeah, this is one of those things where uh, I had to deal with that same with that same point where I'm like, um, I didn't take care of myself at all for three or four years. Yes, I'm in a good spot now financially, but oh my god, am I a mess in every other way? Like I lost every friend I've ever had, effectively. Um, I barely saw my family, if at all. Uh, I hadn't played games. Like the reason I got into this, because I, I loved seeing all of these wonders that people could create and how they could create them. I hadn't done that in years. Um, I've been traveling around the world seeing all of this amazing stuff, but I didn't really get any real connections out of it, yeah. save for a few. Um, yeah, I realized I had to get my, I had to get, like, in, excuse the French, but I had to get my shit together, right? Absolutely. So, I, I decided to do that, and one of the first things I did is I bought a, I bought a console. What did you get? I got the, uh, I think it was the Xbox 360 back in the days, and I just played, I bought and played everything. Just everything I could find. I I had years of games to catch up on. I got myself. Um, I started using my Steam account, which I only had to release games at that point. <laughs> uh, I uh, bought a PlayStation eventually, so that I could play. I think it was Uncharted or The Last of Us. Yeah. Um, that must have been and, amazing. Just like oh, yeah, years no. worth. Of, oh, this is this is the best. I've got everything time. I've got happening. money. I can play everything. Yep. I got myself handhelds, I got the 3DS and the PlayStation, and I just played everything. Everything I could find. Anything I googled for game of the year lists, and then I googled for like the weird indie game lists of that year. And I just played every single thing. Everything I'd missed, everything as a child that I hadn't played that I heard people talk about. Uh, I played Final Fantasy VII for the first time. Uh, I played uh, I played Zelda for the well I played a Zelda before on a Game Boy I think but I I played Zelda properly all of all of them for the first time I just went through everything. Oh, I that could. sounds I'm, I'm I'm almost jealous that yeah, despite how kind of traumatic the previous couple of years have been for that kind of glorious few months. Oh. Yeah, they, it was amazing uh, and like for a lot of games I would play them and then after like a few hours I'd be like yeah I get it. <laughs> I get it. This is this is this is okay, or this is clever, or this, is, and I'd be like, but it's not interesting to me as a player, and that's when I learned to play video games. Uh, I guess properly was. So was what what stuck out then? If you know, you have this here's here's games go nuts. Like what were the ones that you kind of sat with, and while the pile kind of built up by this idea. Well, there were a lot. Uh, I really got into like weird JRPGs for a while, like Blue Dragon and Eternal Sonata for the Xbox were games that I that I adored. Um, I went and played uh, the Gear series, which I thought was really well done. 
Um, I caught up on racing games. Uh, Split Second was just such a phenomenal racing game. A Mario Kart with explosions. Weirdly, Split. That, that's the 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 second time that's come up recently, and it's never come up before. Split um, Second is the most tragic story I've heard in years. Uh, it was made. Um, it was. I think it was a Disney um, studio. It wasn't originally a Disney studio. Uh, but it was uh, published by um, it was developed by BlackRock Studio yeah uh, which was in Brighton in England and um, they did um, did it racing games they did like uh, I remember they did like MotoGP I think and they did like all those ATV games and and, uh, I think they did Pure at some point Uh, and then finally they did uh, Split Second um, but right before that, they got uh, bought um, by uh, Disney. And um, yeah, Disney just shut them down after Split Second. But the thing with Split Second is it was an action racing game, right? Yeah. It was a racing game where you blew stuff up and you used that to annoy your... Like It was like a Mario Kart game, but not Mario Kart, right? And nobody had made a game like that for years. Like it had, like we hadn't seen like a death rally or anything like it for years and years. And then I think in the span of two weeks, both Split Second and Blur release, and they just cannibalized each other's sales. Uh, like neither of them seems to have done particularly well. And uh, Disney. Even though they wanted to do a sequel, like the game even ends with like a to be continued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Disney just basically said no. And, uh, well, that was the end of BlackRock. Oh, man, that is. Uh, we, we, we seem to keep coming to these kind of sad conclusions at various points well, in the chat. Like, that's the thing, right? Like, there's a lot of stories. Like, this is, this is both a thing I love and hate about everything is that. <laughs> Every story needs to have a start and a middle and an end, right? And for things that are beautiful, for things that are absolutely like amazing, the ending of the story usually has to be lower than the hat, right? Yeah, true. Because otherwise the story would just have continued. Um, but also like that, the, the fact that stories end allows for new stories to be told. Right, like the people that did that worked at BlackRock, they went other places and they made other games and they started new things, um, and that's that's kind of how that story goes. Yeah. Um, maybe it'll be continued one day. Yeah, or maybe not. Maybe Split Second will just remain this memory um, that other developers might build on in the future. Right, other games, but like inspired by. Um, the developers that worked on it might go somewhere else and take the knowledge they took out of Split Second elsewhere. Like, not every like, because it's easy to think about the loss of things, right? Like the loss of BlackRock is obviously like a sad moment, but we can also just celebrate the time they were around. Yeah, and just be really happy that they got to make Split Second. Like every video game that ships ever is a miracle. <laughs> like it is so absurd that games get made. It's so like impossible like that games get made that it's just for me it's a celebration every game that comes out even if it's if it's not a 
good game, almost every game that comes out is a celebration. Anything that people pour genuine heart and soul and effort in is a celebration. Whether it's like a tiny weird little indie game made by a single person uh, that wanted to express something about themselves or their life, or whether it's a triple A game backed with $500 million. Um, like both of them are impossible and somehow <laughs> both of them exist. So That is wonderful. Um... Rami, I'm going to try a bunch of uh, relatively quick-fire questions. Rapid-fire. Um, re relatively rapid-fire. I mean, I always say rapid-fire, but it never really is rapid-fire, but, you know, we'll see how you get on. Let's go. Okay, so if you can remember, if you're, if you're prone to such things, what was your worst rage quit? Whew. Uh, I don't really rage quit. Um, I got destroyed at pretty much every game I played by my younger brother. Um, I remember him, I remember angrily quitting a game once because he was slightly faster at screen cheating than me. What does that so, mean? What are you mean screen cheating? So, so if you play like a split screen game, yeah, like Halo, uh, you would like, you know, in a normal Halo game, you would, you would be able to like sort of hide in a 1v1 and then like grab your sniper and then sit there until the other player unknowingly walks into your view and then shoot them, right? But on a split screen, you can look to the other's view. You can see each other's view. Yeah. So you can see where the other person was hiding. So based on that, you could figure out where they were and then snipe them first, right? So we would both screen cheat. So we would both be aware of where the other player was and where we were. And uh, we'd be able to figure out where the other person is. And then we'd be able to shoot each other just based purely on what we were seeing on the other screen. Is that a term, though? Or have you just made yeah. that up? No, no, screen cheating is made up. There's even a game based around that uh, called Screen Cheat. Oh, okay. Well, which I've is a four-player game. It's a four-player. Screen Cheat is phenomenal. It's a four-player game where all the players are invisible. Okay, so you can only see where you are from the, the other screens. No, yeah. that's good. That's clever. Yeah, it's really good. It's a really fun game. Uh, but yeah, no, so we would be screen cheating at each other all the time but his sniping skills were just like a fraction of a second faster than mine <laughs> so he would just continuously destroy me at halo and i remember at some point just be like you know what i'm not playing games with you anymore <laughs> uh and then i just found another game that i would be better at than him for two weeks as he got to terms with it and then he would beat me again well on a, on a similar subject then um what game are you are you best at if you had to play a game with, with death? I tend to be pretty good at any game that requires cooperation. Uh, I, I tend to like leading raids or, um, or whatever, whether it's a co-op game or not, like anything where collaboration is required or management. I You're love a good organizer. Yeah. I, that's what I do, right? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's something I like doing is, Figuring out the, even when I played soccer back in the days, that was always my role was like figure out the play and execute the play and adapt as it, as things are happening. So any team-based shooter, uh, any collaborative games, any MMOs, uh, games like that are games that I, I tend to excel at. I think I'm pretty okay at most types of games. I've played all sorts of games, yeah. even if I like the genre. So, um, but I think my standout, my standout thing is is games that require collaboration. You must be very good at Space Team. I love Space Team. 
I adore Space Team so much. <laughs> what a great game. Oh, it's the best. Um, okay, well, on, on a relatively similar topic, are there, or has there ever been a game in your life where it's kind of consumed your life to the point where you're like, I need to, I need to take this out of my life because it's it's uh, becoming a hindrance. Games that consume my life. Yes. I guess you could just say yes to that answer. Like <laughs> games, games did consume my life. Games are my life. Um, um, like see. a classic, like like a, an MMO or something, is is a, a usual kind of answer where it's just it's starting to eke into real life a little bit too much. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't really think so. I did, like the thing with MMOs that that always saved me from them. I guess to to use a to make it sound negative, but it isn't really. The thing that stopped me from really getting too full into an MMO was that I. So at some point I'd be like level twenty five out of sixty, and I'd be like, "Yeah, I get it. I'm good. This is fine. I could spend like a thousand hours figuring out more." that is similar to this but like clever variations or i can just read up on that somewhere and then be done with it like i was doing i was doing let's play before let's play was a thing where i was just watching how games worked uh based on like weird little videos of like whatever or like reading up on walkthroughs like i would read walkthroughs back in the days just to not have to deal with some stuff that i wasn't interested in (laughs) Um, just get, get the gist of the game. We don't need to play. Yeah, it. I get it. This is fine. I mean, Transport Tycoon really took over my life for a while. Um, That's a good age for it, though. That's fine. When you yeah, exactly that. right. That was exactly that. Oh, Golden Sun. Oh, okay. Golden Sun took me out of life for like weeks at end, where I I think I played it like seven times in a row. Is that the one where you had the this kind of solar charger on it? No, that was Boktai. No, Golden Sun was... Uh, Are they related, was a... though? Was it a sequel? No. Oh, weird. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, they were both Game Boy Advance, though. Uh, no, Boktai was Game Boy Color? No, Boktai was Game Boy Advance, I think. Um, but no, Golden Sun was this JRPG that had a very clever summoning system. Um, and I just... I, I adored that game. And Advance Wars as well. Basically, when I got my Game Boy Advance, things got a bit weird for a little bit. Um, because I could always play games now. Yeah, Advance Wars, a... I think it's fine. Advance Wars feels intellectual enough that it feels it's like, oh, this is fine. This is like playing chess or you know doing a cryptic crossword or something. This feels like valuable time. Yeah, I mean, I used to play Pie Cross as well. That was good too. Oh, that was, yeah, very very good. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I don't think my parents ever agreed that any of that. <laughs> yeah, what do you what do your parents think about about your your career? Have they ever been interested in games? So my, um, that's funny, my dad is Egyptian, right? And for Egyptians, like the, the, the jobs you can take as a guy are like, you can, you, you have four options in life. You can be a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be a lawyer, or you can be a disgrace to your family. That's basically, the, <laughs> that's basically your four options. Um, so he never really understood what I did. And then uh, my mother is very much uh, Dutch. She studied, I think she studied archaeology originally. So she's very much a, you know, do what you want, do what you love, and you'll figure it out from there, right? Yeah. Um, so my mom was always very supportive, even though she had not a single clue what I was doing or why I was interested in it. 
Uh, and my dad has always been like, Rami, get yourself a job that can support your family if you grow up. Like, get yourself a job <laughs> that will pay for your house, that will pay for your life. Uh, take care of that first, and then you can play games, right? Um, so my mom, after Flambeer started working well, after Flambeer started becoming a success, my mom uh, just opened up to this world of video games, right? Like, she... She's not like she doesn't play games, but she's interested. Like she will read, she will read Polygon, she will read Kota. Like she knows about some game news before I do. And if I say like, "Oh, I'm gonna head to, uh, I'm gonna head to Chicago," she's like, "Say hi to Phil." And it's like, "Mom, you, <laughs> what?" I, I'm like, "Yeah, no, I'll visit Phil. I'll, I'll, I'll tell him you said hi." She's like, "How's Octodad doing?" I'm like, "Mom, can you actually know developers and games like linked together? Like, you can ask me these questions. That's kind of weird, but also I love it. That's lovely. Right? Yeah, that's really nice. It's phenomenal. She will ask about things that happen in the games industry that I definitely didn't tell her. Uh, and my brother, again, he keeps track of the games industry quite closely. Uh, so he will tell her stories as well, and then she will ask about those too. And it's 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 lovely. I really I really appreciate that. My dad um, was a bit harder to convince that this was a real thing. Uh, when Indie Game, the movie came out, uh, it was translated into Arabic, uh, and I did like a rough translation before that. And um, I watched it with him, and it kind of convinced him that there might be a living here, even though I had told him a hundred times that I was probably doing better than he was, you know? Yeah. Uh, I can imagine that that seems unlikely, if yeah. what you think I'm doing is playing games, even though even that nowadays can earn you a lot. Yeah, of money. you need to like, you need to see the suffering to realize that it's it's genuine work. Well, I think my dad was pretty aware of the fact that it was suffering. He just didn't wasn't aware of the fact that it could earn money. He thought it was just suffering. Okay. Right? Uh, he thought it was like the the str the struggling artist stereotype that I had, like sort of ended up with. And when I told him, like, no, dude, like that, things are fine. Things are good. I can pay for my life. Like, things are going really well. Uh, he still didn't. He still didn't see that as anything but a fluke instead of yeah. a, you know, like a, a business. Um, and within the game, the movie, I kind of managed to convince him that okay, there might be something here. And since then, he's been very supportive. Like, he still doesn't really understand what I'm doing. Uh, but it doesn't matter. He sees his son is happy and can take care of himself. And that's that's what he wanted. That's what's important. Um, the, the last of the, the, the quick fire questions. Um, what uh, what game, if any, uh, has really made you laugh? Oh, my God. Uh, it's a rare thing. Yeah, well, I mean, gosh, what games made me laugh? Huh. Like the weird, like is is it a weird thing? Like probably Halo. No, no, no I mean that that's uh, the 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 common responses to that are the Tim Schafer adventure games, obviously, yeah. and and multiplayer, like things that happen in multiplayer. Yeah, it's just it's emergence. Emergence gets to me when something wasn't intentional, something wasn't built into the game, like officially, but it's just how systems come together, and then something silly happens. Yeah. Uh, that can crack me up for hours. I think, well, actually, the thing that I remember really 
the one time I remember really like crying with laughter to the point of like needing like oxygen to not pass <laughs> out, I think, was back in the days there was a game called Star Siege Tribes. Okay. And Star Siege was this way ahead of its time multiplayer shooter where um, each, each side had like bases and vehicles and computers and loadouts and everything. And one player could play like an overhead commander that would see the game like an RTS map and you could build like radar stations. And it was super, super intense. It was way too much. Yeah, the thing most the, the thing most people remember from it was that it had like an explosive disc gun. So you would fire discs at enemies and they would like like frisbees. Okay. Um but uh I remember playing and it was me and a bunch of friends and there was no voice chat back in the day, so you communicated through normal chat, through text chat, and what you would do is you would you would enter the you would press the T key, I think, to go into chat mode and then all your controls would stop working as you would type your message. Okay. Um, so what happened is I was running across the field and it was this large desert area and a friend of mine had hopped into, uh, this tiny, very fast flying airplane and he was rushing to the other base because I told him to, um, to just delay them there a bit. And, uh, as he was flying in the distance in front of me, there was this giant enemy ship with like six enemies in it, I think five or six enemies at once, like the largest ship you can have. And it was full of enemies. And I was like, oh crap, like they're going straight for our base and this is going to hurt if they make it there. But we didn't have anybody back to deal with it. Okay. And my friend was flying in that tiny airplane and I was like, you're headed right for it. If you're going to hit that, you're going to die. That ship looks like it's in good shape. The other ship will just keep flying and I can't use somebody dying right now. Like avoid that ship, right? And then I get out and then I'm watching and he just flies straight into it, <laughs> right? He flies straight into it. But then unexpectedly, apparently the ship that was flying towards us had already taken a lot of damage. So it exploded as well. So I'm watching this and he flies into it and then just like seven or eight corpses fly around and he saves us. That's like the end and of then, Independence Day. And then the second after that, as I'm just staring in disbelief that, you know, this worked out somehow, I get a message just that's just like a lot of A's. <laughs> it's like 150 A's and that's it. And I realized that what happened is he was stuck in chat mode trying to steer to the left <laughs> but because he was in chat mode instead of like pressing a to go left he had typed 100 a's then died and then just hit enter your resignation uh and then i uh, then i informed him that he had just probably won us the match and then i think i i cried of laughter for like 15 minutes i think we still lost the match because just all of us lost it oh that's amazing yeah that was pretty good <laughs> Uh, so, you know, 2016, uh, are you excited about the, the future of video games? Yes. I love, I also have to say, I love Destiny. Like, I adore Destiny. Um, Destiny is that weird mix of, of game that I didn't know could exist. It's like an ambient game. Yeah. It's like a game you can play as like the background noise of your life. Like, you you play it whenever you don't feel like playing something else and then every now and then they'll come out with something that is like exciting and big and it feels like a real big deal because it's that character that has been around with you forever me and adriel my my girlfriend 
uh, and also a phenomenal developer. Uh, we um, mm-hmm. we play together. Uh, we actually have never played Destiny without each other. Uh, that sorry. is very cute. Yeah, we we nowadays even have like matching necklaces with our class icon. Uh, she's a hunter and I'm a titan. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I love Destiny. It's also one of those games that I look at with like that sense of like it's impossible that this game exists. Um, because like somebody, can you imagine? Can you imagine that meeting? Like uh, apparently, Destiny was a, a real consideration back when Halo ODST was made, right? Yeah, because there was there was like little kind of in, in hints ODST. to it in the in yeah. the game. Wasn't so ODST two thousand and nine. Yeah. Can you imagine in two thousand and eight, some people from Bungie must have gone to Activision and been like, "Hi, we're with Bungie. We're best known for the amazing hit franchise Halo." Uh, we would like to uh, to pitch a project to you, and then the Activision people must have gone like, "Go ahead," um, and then the Bungie people go like, "So it's not Halo," which is already like, "What? Like you make Halo? Like what?" <laughs> they reach into the trap We're going to make a game that is a first-person shooter and an MMO, which should everybody everybody in that room must have gone like, "That's impossible," and then they add it. Uh, but it's not like a traditional MMO. Like your your parties are going to be like at best three people, maybe six, probably three. And then somebody at Activision must have scratched their head, and then they go like, "Oh, and also like the internet infrastructure that you need for this game doesn't exist yet. Like the internet is definitely not fast <laughs> enough right now, but it will be hopefully in a few years." And then the Activision people must have been really confused at that point, and then the Bungie people must have gone like, "Oh, also we need five hundred million." Because it's a ten-year project that you're committing to, and then somebody at Activision went and signed off on that. It's a miracle. Like that. But we've all benefited from it. Destiny is amazing. Yeah, Destiny is is um, phenomenal. Like it's a it's a lovely game. It's it's a huge achievement. I feel. Um, but yeah, it's such a pleasant, it's just a pleasant game. Like, I love hanging out there and just talking to a bunch of friends and shooting some stuff. And then every now and then go like, okay, let's play serious now. Let's do a yeah. raid or like, let's achieve a thing. Or The raid is the, the raid in Destiny is the first raid I'd ever done in a game. And it was amazing. Absolutely I, amazing. I love the Vault of Glass and I love uh, the uh, Oryx raid, uh, King's Fall. Uh, Crota, yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, it's it's just a very like I'm very optimistic about the game, the future of games. Like we're in a very interesting spot right now, where we have new paradigms with VR. We have no new paradigms with AR. You know, please don't call Pokemon Go an AR game because it isn't. Uh, we have like location-based games. We have games in our pocket all the time. Like we have mobile phones. We have more markets than ever before that people can make games for making games is easier than ever um like the market is always in flux like it's always a crisis it's always a crash it's always you know things are always horrible uh and we have our issues with um you know uh, we need to educate our consumers better we need to be more honest we need to be more open um like we have all of these issues and we're fighting with them and we're we're fighting with the internet. Um, we're fighting with uh, with uh, discoverability. We're fighting with uh, all sorts of things. 
Um, but come yeah. on, the medium, the medium of games, like the amount of stuff we've learned about every possible subject of game development of games is amazing. Like, can you imagine that like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was like, well, at, by now, like 30 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, it was like a revolution to realize that you could take the camera of your game and detach it from your main character. Like, you know, the, the idea that Super Mario in Super Mario Bros. can walk when the camera doesn't move unless you yep. walk to a certain point. That was a revolution. That was like, it blew people's mind that you can do that. And look at where we are now. Like, we have everything. We've figured out so many things. We figured out how to make a game look like a movie, how to make a game feel like you're a different person, how to make a, a game teach you about uh, corruption, like Papers, Please, or about love, or about responsibility, or regret. We've told epic stories. We've told small stories. We've done Firewatch. We've had Final Fantasy. We've done uh, Temple Run, Castle Crashers. We've done, uh, we've done so much. We've achieved so many things. We've learned so many things. And then... VR comes along, right? And then everything we know is suddenly like, oh my God, there's so much more to learn. There's so much yeah. more. There's so much more we can make. And then I travel around the world and I see all of these games with different mythologies and histories and there's so much more. And it's all happening. It's all happening right now. Like we're here to watch that happen. And how, Oh, it's amazing. How and cool for somebody that? who likes figuring things out so much, the prospect of, you know, oh, this is, we need to relearn everything again must be very exciting. I'm very excited. I like. I might have rebuilt our living room for VR. I what's uh, what's your your favorite VR experience that you've had so far? If you're if you're allowed to talk about it, um, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, like Job Simulator is obviously one of the yes, ones yes. that really gets. But like for me, still the one that uh, that really did communicate the the potential of VR to me was uh, Tilt Brush, which is not a game. It's a painting tool, but uh, it's a VR painting tool, and you can draw a circle around yourself, and then you can you can spin in it, or you can sit. You can draw a little fire on the ground, and then sit next to the fire, and then walk to the other side of the fire, and then sit on the other side of the fire. Uh, you can draw your name, and then walk around your name, and then you'll see it from the side, and it's just a thin line in the in the sky like it, it, it the problem with vr is that there is no way to communicate vr like yeah. you got to experience vr to understand vr and i'm not sure if it's going to be like the next big thing and i don't even know if it's going to be like a commercial success in the games industry like i don't know any of these things all i do know is that the first time i got vr like just a new paradigm open like a new way of looking at just everything interactive every every like this conversation could be in vr right like video chat could be in vr the architectural plans will be in vr like so many things will be in vr in the future just because we have access to that technology and it it makes me curious for what we're going to learn from vr it also makes me curious from what you know like now this is added to our re remix now this is added absolutely to our, yeah everything it's is a, new, a new flavor what is the new thing? What is next? What is after this? Right? Like, what is after games? I've often wondered, like, what is, what is the medium after? Is there a medium after games or have we reached it? Is How this do you mean like, after games? What is like, because, you know, you look at the history, 
of, of mankind, we started with play, right? Like play was our first medium. We played with a bunch of stuff. We, we grabbed a stick and then we hit a rock and then we thought, hey, this sound is pleasant. And then we had music, right? Okay. And then after music, we had language. And then after language, we had writing. And then after writing, we would have a script of theater, although we might have had theater before that. And then we had music, we had movies, and then now we have games, right? Now, what is, what is next? Is there anything after games? Is there, is there a medium that pushes us further than games, or have we, have we reached it? Is this, like, is this like interactive entertainment? Is that like our endpoint? Have we reached that? Might that be us? Or is there more? Like, I don't know, but I'm curious. I'm curious to find out. Uh, that is very exciting. Yeah, it's like, what is there? Is there more? Because like the people that did theater, they could not have imagined movies. There's no, there's no way for them to think of movies the way we think of movies now. Because the first movies were just theater plays that were recorded. But yeah. if you would show somebody from the 1800s, 1800s, like Captain America: Civil War, they, they would not even believe it what they were seeing like there is no because the paradigm doesn't exist the understanding is like they would have no idea what was happening a, a cut like just a normal cut would have been disorienting to them like they would not understand the flow of the story they would not understand the 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 angles they would not understand that you know if you look up at somebody it doesn't mean that you're small yeah it just means that the camera point is there and it's used to be more dramatic like they would just not understand those things right is there a thing in the future that we will look at and just go like, I had never, I just, what, huh? Like, is there that thing when, when I'm old, I won't get? Oh, absolutely. Like, and I, 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 I think I think it probably, if the last kind of hundred years or anything to go by, that kind of future will be here much, much faster than uh, oh, yeah. we yeah. anticipated. We That's the thing. We will go through like three or four of those shifts in our life at least. Like, I went through four of those shifts in my life already. Like, I remember the internet not being a thing. I remember cell phones not being a thing. I remember the app store not being a thing. I remember mobile internet not being a thing. Like, that's a few pretty huge changes to the world. And we're not, that's not even all of them, right? Like, there's like laptops? What? What? What's a laptop? Come on, you can't carry a computer. Well, they just did, was it like this week? They just had the first kind of successful quantum computing. Yep. And they, they, did the, they did the teleportation of information using photons and entanglement and stuff. Like that's all in the past month or two. So yep. I'm thinking fully present, all controlling AI by sort of next Christmas. <laughs> and we'll see where we go from there. But that's the thing. Like there's going to be things where we look at them and as people are figuring them out, we, we will just not completely not understand them like people people from my generation tend to already have some issue with like understanding let's play where you oh, yeah where you watch a video game being played right and that's already a new medium that's a new medium you take something interactive and you pull the interaction out of it again it's sports television for video games right uh but then privatized and individualized instead of a, instead of a major corporation doing that um or a government, um, and but that's the thing. Like that was a new paradigm shift. So what's yeah. what's more? I don't know. Like games are exciting to me because they feel like the natural endpoint to media. Like this is where media 
has its ultimate destination. It's, it's kind of a combination of, of everything, or potentially a combination of all the other kind of art forms. And then made interactive. Yeah. Right? That feels like that exhausts every method of, of uh, input and output that a human can have. Right? Like, we can interact with it, even though at this point that's limited through, like, keys or gamepads or whatever. Um, and we get output through most of our senses, right? We don't get smell yet, which given that South Park just made a thing that what that allows you to smell farts that you do in the game, maybe that's better. Uh, <laughs> That'd but, be good. I, I reckon smell would be uh, yeah. a surprise. It'd be one of those things like um, when they first introduced uh, the Rumble Pack in yeah. for the Nintendo 64, and you were like, oh, this is a bit of a novelty, but then within a year... You couldn't imagine a game without Rumble. Yep. That'd be weird. Or music to movies, right? Exactly, yeah. Sound to music. But like, maybe yeah, smell. But when someone cracks smell, that's it. Smell or touch, right? Like Touch, yeah. Because we use, currently we use our, our eyes and our ears. And we have a few more. We have taste, we have smell, and we have touch. So maybe those are the paradigms that we will still, we will still deal with. Uh, position, like actual physical location, this new through VR um and just like the fact like people always say like oh yeah no the big thing about vr is like you are really in that place you know you, and it's it's not the thing about vr is that you can look around you can you can look around you you can turn your head left and then you're looking to the left right that's the weird thing about vr is that we've removed that right analog stick and then we can, then from there we can go. We can go like, okay, you can do it, take a step backwards. What does that mean? Okay, we can take a step forwards. What does that mean? Yeah. What can we do with that? Can we scare people with that? That's always my favorite question is like, can we scare people with something? <laughs> it's also the easiest question because people scare easily. Yeah, of course uh, you can. You can scare people with anything. Yeah, you can scare, like, I, can, I could probably make a really light noise, loud noise now and it would probably upset your listeners. Uh, <laughs> So I won't do that. Uh, but yeah, no, there's, there's a lot we can do with this. And it's just, I don't know. I get rambly about this. Everything is exciting. I'm excited. Games are exciting. Things are exciting. Developers are exciting. The world is exciting. Um, there's just so much good. There's so much stuff happening. And it makes me happy that even though a lot on the planet is in a weird, like, uncomfortable state right now, uh, just the fact that there's such a pure amazing overwhelming amount of creativity oh, is, absolutely is uplifting well that seems like a perfect place to to finish rami unless um there's anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to mention no i think we're good <laughs> that was a that was a that was a pretty long conversation i don't know how long these usually go but that was um, that was quite long yeah it's usually nice. an hour, hour thirty. So we'll 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 figure it out. Um, so where can people find you on the internet? Although I'm sure they already know who you are if you're listening to this. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, may as well put it in. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm. You can reach me on Twitter t h a underscore rami or at vlambeer v l a m and then b e e r. Um, I'm also available on uh, Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash t h a underscore rami or vlambeer. And um, if people have questions or any follow-ups or they're curious about something, I have an account on Curious Cat, which is curiouscat.me slash DHA underscore Rami, and people can just ask questions if they want to. That's fun. It is. 
Um, this is probably a very boring question that you've maybe answered a thousand times, but where does the name Vlambia come from? It's a really bad pun. Uh, okay. We so when we started the company, we um, we couldn't come up with the name because we we'd set ourselves some rules. Like we'd said, like okay, so the name needs to be not soft, not games, not any like that. Okay. Uh, it needs to it needs to be a single word. It needs to be pronounceable in English, and it needs to give us zero um, zero results on Google. And it turns out you could there's it's pretty hard to come up with a name like that. So we we kind of given up until one day, uh, JW was browsing through his his dummy his notebook, and um, and apparently at a party somebody. JW doesn't remember if it was him or somebody else because I think he was drunk. Um, had drawn a bear on fire. And, okay. Um, they put a pun above it, uh, flambera with a f f l a m, and it means to flambe. It means means to light food on fire. So somebody yeah, yeah. took flambera and um, thought that it would be funny to take the word bera, which means bears in Dutch, and just flambe a bear. And then we realized that with an F, it was kind of hard to pronounce, so we changed it to a V because that means flame. Yeah. Dutch. So flambeere turned into flamberen, and then flambeere, which is plural, turned into singular. And then we had a name, which is it's a flame bear, a bear on fire. That's good. That's a good name. That's a good story. I, I mean, it's, it's an amazing name uh, in that it is exactly everything we wanted, and it has an iconic logo. Uh, and all of those were we are still unsure who drew them oh really we have no were idea they just something from a notebook that exact they, notebook they're from that notebook and i have no like jw doesn't remember who drew it the person that we think drew it doesn't remember drawing it <laughs> um so do it, there's just a there's just a void we don't actually know who drew that that is that is that is uh, good trivia knowledge we hope nobody I'm surprised that nobody's come forward and been like, no, I did that. Yeah, well, the thing is, at this point, it would also be very hard to prove that they did yeah. that. Uh, but we're still worried for like, a, well, not really, but like we're jokingly worried about a lawsuit in the future when somebody comes forth with like a picture of them drawing the fire bear. Uh, I mean, for all we know, it was JW. We just literally do, like it is his type of humor. We just don't know. Oh, that, that that's a beautiful mystery. Um, well, thanks so much for your time, Remy. This was super fun. I thanks hope you enjoyed it you. too. Yes, I did. Good, good, good. Um, cool. That's it. That's the end. As always, thanks very much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you continue to enjoy it. Do go back and check out any episodes you might miss. Rate and review on iTunes. Support the Patreon. All that good stuff. You're the best. Have an excellent week. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest.